The most interesting story that I heard from a graffiti artist was probably from Leon Rainbow, who uh, is a, a writer down in Trenton, New Jersey. He goes under the tag Rain. And he told me about a day he went to paint a mural with a friend. And originally they were going to do a demon and an angel. And an old lady came up to them and said she really didn't like that. And they said, okay. And so they went to do another mural. And what it was was a picture of a guy's head and somebody reaching into uh, his brain and getting guns and drugs and things like that. And it was inspired by the phrase, uh, an idle mind is the devil's playground. She said she didn't like that either. So they said, okay. So they went back and did a third one. And this one was had bees and flowers and things like that. Um, and there was a woman in the mural who his friend did, and she was blue. This is a predominantly black neighborhood, but he just chose to make her blue because he wanted to. And she said, no, looks like a demon. And at that point, Leon told me that they went to the building's owner and the building's owner said, don't listen to her. She's crazy. And they just went ahead with it. And that's what they, you know, they, they finished the mural like that. And I thought it was really interesting because this is the kind of interaction with the public that is not normally associated with graffiti. It requires a lot of actual interaction with the public. It requires negotiation, and it requires it requires cooperation. Um, and that's not something that's normally associated with graffiti. Normally, you think of people going out and doing things under cover of dark, uh, doing things the way they want, whether or not somebody else is involved. That was Fordham University's Patrick Verrill, and I'm Robin Shannon. On this week's Fordham Conversations, I sit down with Patrick to talk about his new book, Graffiti Murals, Exploring the Impacts of Street Art. In it, he takes us on a journey to discover how some graffiti murals are created and what roles they play in cities like New York, Trenton, and Jersey City. We also explore the complex relationship between street artists, property owners, and city politics. So you were talking about Rain's mural with the bees and the blue woman who was supposed to be black. What about it? stood out for you? I think it really epitomized what I've been trying, what I had been hoping to find uh, when I talked to writers uh, for the book, which is talking about the process of actually doing these murals in public, in broad daylight, with permission. As opposed to undercover. As oppo yeah, as opposed to what people normally think of, which is the things that are just done slapdash in the middle of the night. And a lot of times people don't like that. So, Patrick, how did you come up with the idea to write a book about graffiti and its social impact? Well, the book is, is based on a um, master's thesis that I earned while working uh, to get an urban studies master's degree here at Fordham University. And the idea was just to talk to the people involved in these, these murals that you would see around New York, or I would see, rather, around New York, and just say, I wonder how those came to be. Um, when you see these things, it's obvious that a lot of effort has gone into them. And I was curious about the kind of negotiations that would develop, that had to be made between the building owners and the artists and then the public that would see these every day. And you're talking about graffiti murals, not necessarily because sometimes when we think of graffiti, we think somebody put their initial up or they put a curse word up. But that's not what you're talking about. What's sort of the difference between the graffiti art that you're talking about that's really an uh, artist work and some of that other graffiti that's considered maybe illegal or unattractive? 
The primary distinction between what I featured in the book and everything else is that this is done with permission. So none of this is done without the people in the built who own the space giving the go ahead. That's pretty much it. You know, um, so much of what is out there, there are things that, that look amazing and they're done illegally. And then there are things that are done legally. And the difference is that when you have permission, you have more time to work on it. And so what you see is a vastly different type of piece. It tends to be bigger. It tends to be uh, more colorful in different variations of color. Um, and it tends to be, and this is, a, this is a judgment on my call, but more creative, I think. More creative because they have more time to kind of tap into their artistic nature. Yeah. Here's, here's a, a, a great way I feel that, that can sort of summarize the, the difference between these kinds of things and the kinds of graffiti that's considered vandalism. One of the gentlemen that I talked to who was a building owner in Staten Island actually referenced, I believe it was Judge Blackman from the Supreme Court, and I asked him, how do you make the differentiation between graffiti that's vandalism and graffiti that's art? And he referenced Judge Blackman's uh, decision about obscenity, and he basically said, I don't know, but I'll know it when I see it. And that's kind of been the overall uh, thinking, you know, when you see these things, you know, you just know. Which neighborhoods did you visit to come up with your research for your book? Well, in the Bronx, I visited um, Hunts Point in Queens, Long Island City. Um, in Manhattan, I visited Inwood. In Staten Island, I visited West New Brighton. And in New Jersey, I visited Jersey City and Trenton. Why these particular places? Well, I wanted to get everywhere in New York City. That was the first goal. Um, I wanted to hit all the five boroughs. And then my advisor recommended that I also look outside of the city because she wanted me to think in terms of the New York metropolitan area. And so I started hunting around in Jersey and stumbled upon a group that did amazing work in Trenton. And so I just had to go there and include it as part of the other, other, the other mix. So it seems like each neighborhood in New York City has its own style and identity. Was it the same with the graffiti in the neighborhoods that you visited? Did they each have sort of a distinct neighborhood vibe to them? Or was it more individual artists? It was more individual artists. There was a connection in, in a couple of the boroughs. In Manhattan, you have a guy who arranged the murals on Inwood who's from the area. And in the Bronx, you have the Tats crew. They organized the mural that I, I featured in the Bronx. That's more of the connection, but it wasn't so much a distinct, this is a Bronx kind of graffiti, this is a Brooklyn kind of graffiti, because they tended to invite uh, their their friends and, and other kinds of artists from around the world, actually, to come. And so you don't really have any the same sort of distinct look to a borough the way you might have back in the you know 1980s 1970s when graffiti was first becoming a thing in New York City it's much more of a uh, a mishmash of of styles i think and you you mentioned crews and you mentioned people bringing in other people from other countries so it's not that solitary artist that's you know sneaking on top of the rooftop to do work even if it's permission it it's a collaborative effort is it Definitely. It's definitely a collaborative effort. I think one of the things that you see is in a lot of cases you'll have a local artist here will work out a deal with a property owner to use their space as a canvas. And then what they do is they open that up to people around the world. 
And everybody around the world who has anything to do with graffiti wants to be in New York City. This is where you want to be. This is where it was born. Everybody knows that. Everyone who wants to get up in New York. And it's also where the most media is. Man, I wish it was back in the days when I was 16 years old with all those cans of paint. Those days were great. And though my memories fade, I still got my sketches and tags all over my page. Patrick Verrill has literally taken it to the streets for his book, Graffiti Murals, Exploring the Impact of Street Art. I'm Robin Shannon, and today on Fordham Conversations, author Patrick Verrill and I discuss what goes into creating a book that takes on the history, policy, and even relationships that develop through graffiti art. For those of us who don't really know about graffiti, um, what would you consider the most famous piece of graffiti art that people worldwide might recognize and go, oh, okay, that's what graffiti art looks like, if they've never seen it? When I think of the general public and I think of art, what people are more f familiar with now is not, it's not a street art. And they think about um, Shepherd Ferry, and they think about Banksy. These murals don't tend to be like that, though, because this tends to be more used with aerosol art. Okay. And I don't know that there's any one artist that's really well known from that type of art amongst you know the general public. They might know the style. You know, there's a very distinct style that you know you've seen from in particular movies from the 70s of New York with the bubble letters on the sides of the um, subways, things like that. So in your book, Graffiti Murals, Exploring the Impact of Street Art, Patrick, you say you believe some people fear what graffiti represents. What does it represent? Well, it represents a loss of control. And what is more precious than having control over physical space? If you don't have control over the space that you live in and the space that you walk around in every day, that's scary, you know? And that's sort of why graffiti is lumped in with broken windows. Because if you don't have... And explain that for the broken windows theory. If one window is broken in a neighborhood and nobody fixes it, then it's seen as a releaser cue. That's the technical academic term, I suppose, that to people who might otherwise do bad things, they say, well, here's a place where nobody gives a, a hoot about. So I'm going to go and I'm going to do something worse. I'm going to go and up my game and I'm going to go rob somebody. I'm going to go up and bonk them on the head and steal stuff from them because clearly nobody cares about this neighborhood. Nobody's going to do anything about it. And the same is true with graffiti. And in theory, if you let one piece of graffiti get put up and you don't do anything with it, the theory, the thinking is that more will come, and it'll. It's this equivalent of a broken window. It's the equivalent of, um, you know, lights not working. It's the equivalent of fire hydrants being broken. You name it. Various things that just sort of speak to you that this is an unsafe place. And you had a good example where um, you quoted in your book where there was a car left in the Bronx, I believe, mm -hmm. and then another car left in California. Could you explain what happened with that? It was pretty interesting. Uh, that's uh, Zimbardo. He's a famous psychologist, and that's an experiment that's widely cited uh, to talk about this idea of releaser cues. And that was the idea was they planted a, two identical cars, one in a neighboring California and one in the Bronx, and just left them there to see what would happen. And eventually the one in the Bronx I think the experiment took place in the 70s. So this is the Bronx back when things were really bad. It got dismantled, you know, in broad daylight mm -hmm. by people who, you know, they were watching and 
people. They were doing it who seemingly looked like normal people. They didn't look like they were criminals or anything like that. I think they did like 20 or 40 seconds or 40 minutes. It didn't take long for, yeah. for it to get it get torn apart, right, once the, once the people realized that it wasn't occupied. Whereas in California, it got left alone. And when they went to go tow it, then somebody called and said, hey, what's going on? And so this is, this is seen as being an example of people taking their cues for behavior from the things they see around them. And how did you incorporate that into your book? Well, graffiti can be seen two different ways by the general public. There's a very big distinction between the kinds of graffiti that's seen as vandalism. That's what I talk about with Judge Blackman and the I know it if I see it kind of variety. And then there's the kind that is done in murals with permission, which is what I feature in the book. And what I got from talking to residents and talking to building owners is that they see it as the absolute opposite, that this is seen as a sign that this neighborhood matters, that somebody cares about this space. And not only that they care about it, but, and this is a really important distinction, that they care about it in a way it's not just about money. So the building owner is not looking merely to maximize their, their profits from the building. They're actually willing to use it in a way that befits the community is a signal that this is a place that matters. More than just for for gentrification. Yeah. Well, this is where it gets really, really awkward, and I don't mean to muddy the waters too much, but it can be both, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. there, are, there was one fellow who I talked to who was very honest with me about his desire to help spur gentrification with a mural because he knew that if the neighborhood is seen as better, then more people will move there. If more people will move there, more rent will be paid. If more rent will be paid, more people will move there, and that cycle continues. So it can be about that also. When did or has graffiti crossed over, graffiti murals, crossed over into popularity, would you say? Or is it still sort of on the fringe, like fringe art? When did it become crossover into the mainstream. Hmm. Or did it? I think it has. I think if I had to, at least in New York, it's hard to say outside of New York City because we're such an unusual place compared to the rest of the country. But I think in New York, you could make a very strong argument that the, that the blossoming of Five Points signaled a real appreciation for this sort of thing because it became this bona fide tourist you know, destination because it was so huge and so easily accessible. And Five Points is this huge, or was this huge building yeah, in Queens where yeah. artists were pretty much just would be invited to come and put up their murals or their paintings or whatever they wanted to do on this large building. Yeah. 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 So I have to ask, what do you think about the fact that Five Points has now been replaced by condos? Oh. Sad? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it makes me very stabby feeling. <laughs> it makes you feel stabby. Very stabby. Yes, I, I can't other. I can't put it any other way. It makes me want to stab something. Yeah, there are so many things wrong about that. And the fact that and, they want to keep the name Five Points for the condos. That makes me want to stab even more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be so violent about these sorts of things, but I do. You're passionate. I consider Patrick, that. Patrick, you're passionate. Well, I consider, I, I, I have some understanding of why it all happened, why it had to come down. You know, why? When you, when you look back, well, it was zoned to be coming down. 
it was zoned that way. That was what the city wanted, and the city made it such that it didn't make any sense from a money perspective to put anything else up other than condominiums. So if that guy left that building up, he would be losing, I can't even begin to imagine how much money he would lose, and that's not going to happen. I do take real exception to trying to trademark that name. I find that to be appalling. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just that's just outright cultural theft. And talking about um, buildings and building owners um, and making money, how does graffiti affect capitalism? In your book, you talk a little bit about that and a little bit about Marxism. Right. This is a little hard to get into. It can it can get it's very easy to get kind of caught up in the weeds. But the general concept is that capitalism is premised on the idea that you want to get as much surplus value as you can out of your property. And the way you do that is you extract what's called monopoly rent. Monopoly rent in New York City is real estate, right? That's the most valuable thing you can have, really good real estate. So where graffiti murals factor into this is that they are what um, David Harvey would reference as cultural capital. And that's something that makes you a distinct place. So it's something that makes New York different from Chicago. It makes it different from Boise, Idaho. It makes it different from everywhere else in the world, really, is, is the cultural capital, as well as the regular capital. And so the, what the book is meant to highlight is these six instances where these owners see that value, that see that cultural capital. And that's why they've embraced the murals instead of just bl- plain old run of the mill. I'm going to, you know, turn my building into a money making machine, which the city's ha- happy to help you do by buffing all of the vandalism graffiti. Which is something that um, some building owners actually prefer having this city come in through what's the name of the project? The gra- uh, Graffiti Free New York. And they'll come in and instead of having these murals, they'll just sort of whitewash the whole building. Yeah. And you had an experience with looking at some of these buildings. What did they look like to you instead of having, you know, the creative art on it? Well, some of them were fine. Mm-hmm. Honestly, some of them they did a really good job on. And some of them they were, they'd obviously done. And then somebody had come back again and hit it up with a tag. And then somebody had, in many cases, gone over that tag with a, a, some kind of paint that didn't match. And so, in my opinion, you didn't make it any better, really, because you just have this weird mismatched block of of paint Um, but many of them do look fine they're they're perfectly fine there's nothing wrong with them and there's nothing wrong with having a clean building either Uh, you did talk to one owner who had sort of this you know and there's a wonderful picture of it in your book patrick that had exactly what you would describe it looked like they there was different shades of white and it was not very attractive but he said he preferred that why well he thought that if he had a mural done that it would attract more graffiti and he also just didn't care for it. He just didn't see the point. He saw his building as being something that you would conduct business in, and it didn't really make a difference what it looked like on the outside. He was completely oblivious to that. Some of the owners that you talk with, did they even know that there was a difference between maybe the sort of bubble-style 70s, you know, throw-it-up-real-quick graffiti and this graffiti mural art that takes time and effort and energy and artistic skill. Did they seem to know that there was a difference? Oh, yeah. They did? Oh, gosh, yeah. They all, uh, most of them were very aware of the difference. They could see it because that's their building. They could see the work that went in. They could see the amount of time that went into it. And many of them were just plain old 
amazed at what these these guys and girls could do with with spray cans and this is something that's important to know too is that the local nature of this these are people that are local business owners and in many cases are promoting local artists so patrick you talked with a number of graffiti artists for your book graffiti murals exploring the impact of street art what have they told you is the lore for doing this type of art to be notoriety popularity is it any of that well, it's popularity, and it's also, in many cases, a um, carrying on the tradition of the art. A lot of these guys had been doing this for a very, very long time, and they just couldn't imagine not doing it. They, it's no different than why do you get up and drink water in the morning? Why do you get up and breathe? They live to paint. They live to do art, and they don't want to do it in a place where they're not seen. And... Graffiti is nothing if not meant to be seen by the public. When did it make that crossover? When did graffiti grow from being something that was vandalism in the 70s to something that's accepted a little bit more now, where you have people who want you to put it up on my building? It's going to attract, you know, more artistic people. Hmm, I don't know the exact date. For, I can't pick an exact date for that. I feel like it's a very, it's been a very slow kind of evolution. Was and there an experience? You could point to the popularity of Keith Haring and Basquiat when they first became famous. And, and who then are they? The artists in New York City. And their stuff was starting to be shown in uh, galleries. That was back in the 80s, though. That was a long time ago. So I think, actually, I take that back. I think you could probably point to, if we're talking about building owners, that's what we're sort of focused on here. Mm -hmm. You could make a case, I think, that it became a big deal when you could no longer paint on trains, when the MTA finally was able to declare a victory in the war against graffiti. Because up until then, you wanted to be up, you wanted to get your art onto a train. That's where all the effort went into. And then they more or less won that war, and that was no longer an option. So, how did they win that war? Well, they did lots of things. They made trains that you couldn't actually paint on. They put barbed wire around all the yards. They have the Vandal Squad, which actually actively tracks people and looks for them and things like that. They did all sorts of things to keep uh, graffiti artists from riding on trains. And the, they also stopped actually running trains with graffiti on them. The minute one has a scene with something on the side, it never leaves the yard. It stays. So the whole point is moot. You don't get to see it. So once that was done, you know writers had to say, okay, where do we go now? And that's when I think buildings became the next step. Out of all the graffiti murals that you researched, which is your favorite and why? This is really hard. This is like me trying to choose which of my kids is my favorite. <laughs> I, I can't really choose one, but I will. I'll be game for it. One of the one, my favorite ones, and this is a rather unfortunate instance, but I, I love it anyway. It's called Death from Above. What does it look like and who painted it? What does it look like and who painted it? It's actually in the book. It's at the very end, and it's by Revs and Caves. Those are the two writers, and it's in Dumbo. What had been the highlight of it was a, a little robot that was perched at the top of the of this building, a pizzeria, looking down, and it was actually homemade, welded together at the top, looking down and looking like it was shooting lightning down onto the ground, uh, sort of shards of lightning going every direction, and there was blues and oranges and greens and then so the, it was a real like metallic robot looking yeah, yeah and then but the paint itself made it look like it was shooting yeah oh that's awesome yeah and the revs bot was shooting that's why it was called death from above mm -hmm. and it, the two guys uh tags were in the middle of it and 
it just it was just the most amazing thing and it, it's still there now unfortunately the actual revs bot has been ripped off somebody stole it but it's it's the kind of thing that even in dumbo where there's lots of interesting street art you still kind of stop and go what <laughs> no well, you know what? I have to take that back. I real I just realized that's my favorite, but it's actually not one of the ones I I interviewed in the book. It is in the book. It's just not one of the artists I interviewed. the The mural that I like the best of any of the ones of the artists that I interviewed has got to be the subway cars rising up out of the the tunnel that the Tats crew did over um, off Intervale Avenue in the Bronx, and it's kind of an iconic shot anyway. Uh, it's a picture of literally the train tracks that you're seeing it from of the trains rising out and coming out. And it's, I, I, I like it because it's very self-reverential. It's got train cars on it that have graffiti on it. So it's kind of a throwback to back when they could actually get away with that. And it's also such a lovely high profile location for the Bronx. One of the things that I loved about the talk that I had with uh, Nicer from there was he talked about, is Nicer the artist? Or Nicer the... is one of the artists for the Tats crew, and he talked a lot about how this was a good spot to have because it exposed children and families to art in the Bronx in places where they might not otherwise see it. You know, He said that they might not be f familiar with the Goyas and the uh, pointillist kind of art, and they might not be able to get down to MoMA to see modern works of art, But and this is definitely a little self-serving, but he liked to think that the, what they were doing was a new variation on this. A new variation of being a hometown artist? Yeah. Patrick, what's the biggest risk you took to get information from your book? Did you have to take any risks? The biggest risk I took? Hmm. Problem is I'm an old man now, so I don't do that. Like, if I mean, I was literally <laughs> married with a kid while half this was going on. So there were... It was more like risks not taken. There were a lot of times where there were things that I'd hear about and I wanted to go see, and there was just no way I was going to do that. Because Give me I an can't, example. I can't. Oh, well. Yeah, because you have a wife and kids. So. Exactly. A good example. Well, there are a couple things. I mean, there's the Freedom Tunnel, which is in the Amtrak Tunnel that, that leads on the west side. That's full of, or at least had been full of amazing murals that I would have loved to have seen. There's a. What's, what's wrong with it? Well, it's off oh, limits. Oh, it's, okay. It's railroad tracks. Okay. There's another space. And you don't space, want to get arrested. And I don't want to get arrested. Right. Yeah. There was another space in, in Brooklyn and Gowanus, the colloquially known as the Bat Cave, an old power station that I would see pictures of online with amazing murals. And again, that would be trespassing to get in. And then the biggest one, of course, was the Underbelly Project, where a whole bunch of artists painted an abandoned subway station in uh, Williamsburg, where would have been amazing to go. I didn't get invited to go when people went, but I always thought about maybe, well, could I do that? But I, I can't take those kinds of risks anymore, which makes me a little bit like a lot of these guys that do these murals because that's why a lot of them do it too, is they don't want to risk getting caught anymore. Right. They can't afford to get arrested and, and have felonies and you know, they have mortgages to pay and kids to take care of also. I was going to say, the biggest challenge I had was definitely still getting to talk to people. Because even people who do this stuff uh, legally, there's still a lot of people who do it legally and still do it illegally. And so they're very wary of outsiders. And so even though I managed to make a couple of contacts on the inside, as it were, when coat marks, yeah. there were still some people who blew me off and just wouldn't have anything to do with me because they didn't know who I was. And they th that's... That was running a risk for them. Yeah. And what's next for you? 
another book? I'm going to see where this goes first. Yeah. I don't really have any idea where it'll go. If if I have a goal going forward, it's that I want to actually make a change to the current system that they have in place here, the 311 system. I really do think that there is a support out there for these types of murals. What but do you that, mean the 311 system? What is that? So the way it works right now is if you if there's graffiti that's vandalism on your building and it either you want it removed or somebody else wants it removed. You can call 311 and they'll log it in the system and Graffiti Free New York will contact the building owner and say, hey, we have this here, we have this complaint, what are you going to do about it? And you can either ignore them, in which case they'll come out and they'll just clean it without even asking you, or you can say, go ahead and clean it, that's fine with me. I'd love for you to do that. Or you can say, keep it. I like this. I like this stuff. And what I really, really hope will happen eventually is that the fourth option will come into play, which is that they'll say, would you like a referral to somebody who can do an amazing mural for you? That's the piece of the puzzle that's missing right now. And I know there's support for it because these six studies prove it. You know, you have these building owners who are willing to work with these artists and artists who are willing to work with the building owners to make these things happen. So it's not like it's something that's out of the realm of possibility. My thanks to Patrick Verrill. His book, Graffiti Murals, Exploring the Impact of Street Art, is out now by Schiffer Publishing. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Sunday at 6 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Well, a picture can express a thousand words to describe all the beauty of life you give. And if the world was yours to